This podcast is brought to you by BeatStars, the number one marketplace to buy and sell beats. In this episode, our host DJ Payne One chats with music producer Chu about how he optimizes YouTube for SEO. To our pro page users, don't forget to check out our opportunities and challenges on BeatStars World for a chance to work with some of the industry's best creators. If you're not a ProPage member, but would like to try it out, use the code PODCAST for a 30-day free trial. And of course, don't forget to leave us a five-star review. Enjoy the show. Um, I just want to make sure that everything is working. Um, Whoa. Whoa. That wasn't cool. Uh, the Twitch got unlinked somehow. So I just confirmed in the panel that Twitch is streaming live right now. Um, but I think that might delay an update for those of you on Twitch. Shout out to Cloud9. Shout out to Sweet Speaker. Uh, I, I do see that both of you are streaming from Twitch. So, uh, The numbers are starting to go up. That means that everybody else is on YouTube. And I know that that Twitch is a preferred streaming medium for a lot of people. And so I'm sorry that uh, there was a delay on the Twitch. I I couldn't help with that. Um, Things happen with with these accounts and, and we got it going at the last minute. Before I bring in our special guest... Damn, man, I sound like Porky the Pig. Uh, I talked about it last time. The Battle of the Tight Beats is still going down. That's Tuesday, August 31st. It's a head-to-head battle with some of the hottest sounds out. Choose a side, submit your beat, and tap in to see who gets crowned Battle of the Tight Beats winner. This week's matchup is Dancehall versus Afrobeats, and that's going down August 31st, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Beat Stars Live. That's a Tuesday. And uh, the winner gets $50 in promo credits and additions to the official BeatStars playlist, which is dope. Um, submit your beats at beatstars.world forward slash opportunities. I'm, I'm pasting the link in the chat right now. So you don't have to remember what I said. You can just copy and paste it, click it right now, bookmark it for later. Definitely get involved in all the opportunities that the BeatStars universe has to offer. So right now I'm going to bring in our special guest. The hell was that sound? Damn. Seriously, what was that sound? That was a jarring and terrible sound. I'm going to bring on our special guest right now. Chu, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good, man. How are you? Uh, great. Off to a rough start with the Twitch thing. Um, so hopefully that all resolves itself. But I appreciate you being on here. And just before anyone asks to preempt. The questions, yes, this episode will be archived. So even for the people who missed it, it will be archived on Twitch, um, the BeatStars YouTube, as well as my YouTube. So whatever information is, is is given out on this particular episode, it will be there forever for everybody. Uh, so I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Uh, I know a lot of people were excited for this uh, session. And of course, but yeah, I want to talk about a lot of um, background information and, you know, really 
I've only known of you, I think, what, for like a year, year and a half? Right. Uh, when we first linked because of, of that uh, tape. And according to your channel, it looks like you first started uploading to YouTube a little over three years ago. You were uploading beats to YouTube. Is that correct? Just three years? Yeah, I was doing it for about three years, uh, three and a half. I had an older channel, but I kind of restarted my process with this channel that's up right now, the big one. Okay, so when you first started your your channel um, before the new one, which isn't really all that new, did you have a strategy or what made you uh, get rid of that channel and start a whole new one? So with that first channel, I was mostly just messing around. I wasn't trying to like sell beats or anything. I was still using the tight beat kind of approach to everything because I wanted people to definitely see it, but it wasn't geared towards selling anything. So when I realized that I wanted to take advantage of that opportunity, that's when I created the new channel and I kind of took a, a more business approach towards everything with that channel. Okay. And right now, present day, is music your full-time job? Yeah. Yeah. So how how long would you say from when you started to take seriously pursuing music production as a as a business to becoming an actual full-time music producer? Um about 8 months I'd say. Um I actually it was forced on me though. I started taking it seriously when I was in grad school. Um and I was making like decent money, like enough money to live, maybe not the most comfortable, but definitely enough money to sustain myself. Um, and then I ended up getting kicked out of school. So I was just like, OK, now it's like do or die. And it's from that moment when I started taking it seriously. So like when I first started taking it serious in grad school, it had been maybe like that was like maybe in November of 2019 or 2018. So then in full of 20. 19 when I got kicked out of school that's when I started taking it seriously so that was six months and then another two months after that that's when I was full-time that was when I was making more than enough money to like consider myself full-time damn that's a that's kind of a crazy story I don't know how much you want to talk about um that particular experience but um I I, I read I know you've shared this story at least vaguely about being in grad school. And I know with my experience, I was in grad school. And when I got out, I was offered a job and I figured it would pay highly because I had a master's degree at that point. So I was excited for it. And then, um, it, it turned out that it paid like a third or a fourth of what I'm making now, just selling beats online. Um, and you kind of had a similar experience, right. With weighing your, your economic options. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's kind of like the whole thing, at least from my perspective, it seems like college is a little scammy because you don't really get the return on your investment unless you end up getting a scholarship or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on then. I don't want to depress everyone. I, I actually was able to get a, a research position at the university, so <clears throat> it was a good situation for me. Um, th- here's a narrative that's that's been floating around forever. I don't think it's left for the past five, 10 years. Um, I, I just want your take on it. Is the online beat selling universe too saturated? Um, 
No, the simple answer would be no. But the more long form answer is that depending on how you're approaching things, it can feel very saturated. Um, so, yeah. And so throughout the year, you've been giving out instruction in mostly in the form of tweets to producers on how to build up their, their beat selling business. Um, before we jump into the business of everything, I know you've also expressed that a lot of beat makers these days are focused on the money more than anything. And that ends up destroying their careers before they even begin. Can you explain what you mean? Um, so I think that by that, I mean that when you're, when you start off with an approach of, I'm going to try to use this as an opportunity to make money. Like when people treat it more as like a get rich quick scheme, like Amazon drop shipping or like, I don't know anything it's like, it's like a really hot thing. And it's just something that people are doing to get like a little bit of money in their pockets. I think approaching it from there kind of perverts the art a little bit. Maybe pervert is like an aggressive word, but um, I think it distracts from like ultimately actually making good beats, which is the actual thing you need to do in order to actually sell beats in the first place. So it's like this whole feedback of like kind of distorting your approach to actually making progress as a musician, both like in terms of skill and in terms of finances. When in your experience, with with your own career when did you decide that you were actually ready to sell beats um and and how did you balance the the those two concurrent uh paths the 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 one path you're making you want to learn to make better beats you know musically better sonically better on the other hand you want to build up your business and learn marketing and all that other stuff and actually make money it seems to me that a lot of producers get, you know, it, one, it's hard for us. It, it's hard for most producers starting out to not look at their, their beats and then be critical. Uh, either, either it's like they hate everything and all oh, my beats are so trash or it's like, I'm the greatest thing ever. Uh, watch out Timberland. I'm, I'm stepping on your <laughs> neck right now. Cause I just made a four bar loop. You know what I mean? And so right. we all we're so excited. We forget that we have, a long way to go. And then we also see, just like you said, you brought up Amazon drop shipping. A lot of, uh, a lot of folks who are, you know, maybe selling core and I don't want to criticize everyone, anyone, but a lot of people who are maybe selling courses or making money in the producer education space might be marketing a false narrative or they're marketing the idea of making money, but the producers might not be, at the point yet where they're ready to monetize on their art. So when did you feel comfortable doing that? And what advice can you give to a producer starting out? Who's not quite there yet? Um, I felt I first started feeling comfortable the first time, like, cause I've been putting my music everywhere on SoundCloud and YouTube and stuff. So after about eight or nine months of producing, which was somewhere around 2018, I started kind of like, getting artists to kind of hit me like which would you want for this beat they were like i was asking for offers and they were definitely lowballing me but i was just using that actual thing happening as an indication of like okay my beats are at least decent enough to attract some type of client to want to purchase them so that's a sign that maybe that direction if i wanted to so then from there i just started posting 
Dick wherever I could to get feedback. I was posting it in, and this is something that I recommend like everybody do because it's one of the best ways to get feedback. I was posting it in like Discord chats, like in the feedback channels, and I was posting it on Reddit forums where like anybody was giving out like trap feedback, just literally anywhere where I could get anyone to critique my work and tell me something that I could do to improve. And I did that for maybe like another six months. And then I was like, okay, like I have a decent enough product now, actually a pretty good product in my opinion back then, even though my beats were pretty garbage back then, like on reflection, like I still felt like, okay, these are good enough to sell. And that's when I made that move to start selling them. Okay. Just, just quickly. I want to say four bar loops are amazing. I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't trying to minimize the power of a four-bar loop. Um, yeah, let's let's dive right into the thick of it. You've given out a lot of information about YouTube channels. YouTube seems like the most contentious space for beat makers these days. Actually, for for damn near all creators these days, just because of all the changes, it seems like every day there's a new change. There's so much competition, and the information that you give out is super detailed. And I want to go through some of your threads um just kind of break them down in long form of course you sent out this this the series of tweets i don't this was months ago and you broke down this i don't remember seven or eight or nine or ten step youtube approach mm-hmm. number one you said it's important to understand your youtube goal before you even start what do you mean by youtube goal So you want to understand what you want to accomplish, but it's not just that because anyone can have like as wild a dream as they want to. But then you also have to kind of compare that to how much effort do you want to give and then how much you realistically give. So all three of those things. So your actual what do you actually want? What are you willing to give and what can you realistically give? And that combines to kind of set a goal that you want to achieve in terms of YouTube. So that could be anywhere from I want 1,000 subscribers to I want 100,000 subscribers and I want this to be my job. Or, you know, I just want a few hundred extra dollars a month or I'm just trying to build an audience. Whatever that is, defining that and then figuring out how much of your sweat equity you can devote to it kind of determines that goal that I was talking about in that tweet. And then number two, you said that YouTube uploads should contain a clear call to action. Um, What is a clear call to action and how have you applied this concept to your channel? So a clear call to action is basically just like demonstrating somewhere on the in the like metadata. So it could be the title or the description or actually in the video if you're if it's more on the content creation side as opposed to like just type beats where it you can't really talk in them and give clear calls to action. It's basically just something directing the person who's watching the video to take an action. And usually it's in, it's like geared towards interacting with your products or getting on a list or like liking the video or following you on some form of social media. Um, so in terms of like being a tight beat producer, that would, your call to action is basically made in the title of your video. You're saying this is a free type beat. Um, and it's available for free download. And as long as you're being clear about where you're putting that link in terms of the comment, the pinned comment, and, you know, the top lines of the description, that kind of formats into your call of action. Um, so that's why I think type beats are really cool in general on YouTube, because once you kind of figure out how to get that traffic, the call to action is kind of already built into the system. 
Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> What's crazy to me is so I I tell producers all the time, um, you really have to make that experience for the customer as easy as possible, and you have to make that call to action as clear and accessible as possible. Because um, I will to this day, I'll put the the um, link in the description that's clearly marked. I'll pin the tweet that says, here's the link to the beat. And people will actually reply to the, to the pin tweet with a link in it and say, how do I get this beat? So I think a lot of us um, overestimate our customers familiarity with the the, the, the beat leasing systems that have been in place for years. You know, there, there might be a new, group of artists getting on the internet every single day who have never experienced that. So um, it's something that, I mean, is that something that you've dealt with where you, you've really had to make your system as easy as possible? I know a lot of producers are resistant to that. We're like, well, they should know. I'm not wasting my time explaining that to them. Yeah. um, I'm like probably the chief of that like club of like producers who's like really resistant to doing stuff like that. It's a mistake that I've made for a long time. But like you said, I was severely un- or overestimating like my client's ability to actually understand the process. And that's a big part of like actually making that purchase of them pulling out their credit card and saying, I'm going to purchase this product or even committing to being on your email list or anything like that. So I've had to deal with it in terms of just like, I don't know, getting rid of my ego and being willing to provide as excellent customer service as possible, whether I'm getting a sale or not. And then just creating, like, I'm trying to just create a bunch of like text documents and I might end up making them into blogs later information that's easy to understand. So whenever I do get a question that kind of falls in there, I can just send it to them. And I think that's going to really good way to just make it as clear as possible if i'm not already making it clear at every step of the process just finding different ways to just make it easy all right let's go on to number three point number three um you said that youtube and google algorithms are filtering content based on thumbnails but so are the artists and coincidentally bufa asked this question um if you found more success on youtube with certain types of thumbnails which is part of this point you're making what does that mean for producers what is what what do the algorithms filtering content based on thumbnails what does that mean in practical terms for us selling beats okay the most important thing to understand i guess from that would be that whenever someone is searching for something on youtube they're typing in the text and expecting to see something like particular like if they're searching how to cut an apple they're going to be expecting there to be an apple somewhere in the thumbnail. If the video has like a banana or like a picture of a desk or something like random, like it's less likely to be clicked just because it doesn't match the search query in the person's mind. So people are like always kind of doing that in their mind. And at least with my channels, the both of the channels that I have that I post a lot of content on, whenever I use like clear thumbnails, so whether it's like describing exactly what the video in terms of it, terms of really high quality images for my main channel, which I do tutorials on, I get much better click throughs than like if I were to just put some like random 
image that doesn't really have anything to do with. And it's the same thing on my Tight Beats channel. Like when I use like very cool artsy images, I feel good. And like some people might kind of get the point behind it. But whenever I use artist images, for some reason, I tend to get like crazy click through rates. Like my regular click through rate, if I was, I tested this like kind of an A-B testing over a couple of weeks, my regular click through rate with um, just like, kind of stock images or images that aren't related to the artist basically was 7%, which is still pretty good in terms of YouTube standards. But once I switched over to like just using artist images, like it went to like between 14 and 16%. So almost double click through rate just by changing the images. And I don't think that's a coincidence. So you would tell producers, if producers are uploading beats, use an image relevant to that beat and usually an artist photo is the best way to go yeah that would be my recommendation if you just want to like help yourself get a little bit more views get more click through so then let's move on to number four you emphasize relevance specifically the content of the videos matching up with the keywords um what are a lot of producers not understanding about relevance <laughs> Um, I think maybe that like relevant content, like is considering the fact that it's good content. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, like a bad video, like, I don't know how to explain this, like a video. Okay. Going back to the Apple example, like a video that says like, I'm going to teach you how to cut an apple. It comes on and it's like teaching you how to cut bananas or it's like showing you how to cut an apple, but it's like literally in the worst film ever. Like it was recorded on a microwave or something like that would be bad content compared to like a very like high definition 4K video of like someone cutting an apple and giving like this well thought out demonstration of how to like perform the task. It's kind of the same thing when you're doing tight beats, like a bad beat is not relevant content compared to a really good beat. So that's where it kind of goes back to you have to really make sure you're making really, really good beats just to start off. Um, otherwise, nothing else ends up mattering. Um, the quality of your product is kind of always paramount to everything else. And then, like, in terms of tight beat producing, um, just making sure that, like, whatever type of beats, if you're going to do tight beat producing and use YouTube to kind of accomplish that goal, just making sure that your whatever keywords you're using fit the type of beat you're making. And that's where like getting good feedback can come in. Cause you can also ask the people who feedback, Hey, what does it sound like? Who does it sound like will get on this beat or like what kind of vibe does this beat give you that can help you figure out what kind of keywords you might be able to use. And from there you can use different tools to do keyword research to figure out like terms that match that search term, but that are maybe don't have the most competition. Okay, I think that brings us to point six. You said other metadata should be driven by the artists that you select to make up your niche. So that that's what we're naturally leading into, right? Mm-hmm. What is what is that? I know this is like a rabbit hole, but what is what does that all uh, amount to? Um, so metadata is everything. So of course it's, well, not of course, I don't like using that term, but like it, it refers to your title is one of the biggest metadata things. Um, Because that's the most, like, that's going to end up driving the most, like, traffic to your video, the actual keywords you have in your title. But then there's other, like, metadata 
kind of like input fields as well. Like your description counts a lot. That's why another really helpful tactic on YouTube is to put the tags that you actually put in the tag section and copying them over to the description because having relevant keywords in your description can help you rank higher in the search engine. Um, and then, of course, the tag section as well. Those aren't as important as they used to be on YouTube, but they're still really helpful in just pure SEO terms. So just making sure you have like relevant keywords in there and good like long form keywords as well. So you can rank in some smaller niches. OK, and lastly, um, you've been giving out free YouTube channel audits for a lot of producers um, which is you're doing God's work, but um, what given all of that input that you had from looking at these these different channels, what are some of the common mistakes you're seeing producers make with their YouTube channels over and over again? Um, the most common would be lack of consistency because um, that's going to end up being the most important thing as long as your beats are good and as long as you kind of have everything else set up is are how consistent are you posting and how much can the algorithm depend on you to deliver content. Um, and if YouTube doesn't feel like they can use you to sell ad space, they're not going to promote your content as much as someone else who can perform that task. So ultimately, you have to pick some kind of consistency that works for you. Another mistake that I see a lot goes back to kind of like the most key point I'm trying to make in this entire discussion, which is like bad beats. I wish there was a better way to say it, but um, a lot of people are eager, and I was the same way, honestly, to kind of get into beat selling without like making sure that their product is like 100% first. So that would be the second mistake. And if I had to name one more, it would be not actually structuring the, and we've talked about this already, not actually structuring the video in a way that has a clear call to action. So that could either be poor metadata, which is really important for the type beat whole producer thing, or just not having, you know, download links like a BeatStars link in there where you can give out the free beat or sell the beat and then, you know, exchange information and, and change information for the product that you're giving. So not setting it up properly in order to actually would be the third one, third mistake I see the most. All right. So we get to move away from that super long list. Um, Something really interesting about your YouTube channel, at least the one that I'm, I'm seeing and basing this question off of is that you upload producer tutorials and beats. And I do that, too. I personally wish I had just made two separate channels early on, one for recording artists and one for um, for producers. Does uploading both kinds of content to your channel confuse the YouTube algorithm in your experience? Yes. Um I think it will always naturally because the beats tend to be shorter than the video or they're always shorter than the videos. They have shorter, shorter watch time, shorter retention time by percentage. So the stats are kind of all wonky. So it's always going to throw the algorithm off. Um, and back when I didn't really understand a good ratio for actually doing that, it would throw the algorithm off a lot, a lot. I would end up, you know, getting less traffic coming towards my way when I was posting too many beats um, because most of the people on that channel now that are subscribed are producers. I would say if I had to take a rough guess, 80, 80 to 85% is producers. Um, so just finding good times to actually post the beats and then making sure I'm posting a good ratio 
in terms of tutorials to beats was part of that process of trying to keep the algorithm from punishing me, punishing me for posting, you know, multiple types of content on the same channel. I was wondering, actually, how do you go about that? Because I noticed you're one of the only producers that I've seen that's kind of like up there who's also posting beats and content on the same channel. Uh, truth be told, I'm, I'm trying to start other channels that are just for beats just to see what what can work. And my issue is that my channel's been around for so long and it's amassed, you know, over 100, about 120,000 subscribers. So starting a new channel should have been something I did, you know, 10 years ago. And I'm, I'm suffering for that now. So my my advice, if I had to give advice, if anyone's asking, is is start things off the right way if you can. Um, and then you don't have to be like me having this conversation years later about what he should have done. Cause at this point I, there's, I can't change it. Um, I can only test out alternatives and that's what I've been doing. But um, y- you know, the, the funny thing was, and I think, didn't you tweet something about this? I want to see. Um, did, did you tweet something that had to do with YouTube not being no that was cloud nine okay then I want to ask you this question so I had cloud nine on um, last week and he uh, he had tweeted something to the effect of you know YouTube is not the most relevant source of traffic or income uh, for many producers and, you know, he explained the strategies he used and the platforms he used to to get beats to artists. For you, what, what's, what's your experience? Would you say that YouTube is a substantial, um, in terms of beat sales, would you say YouTube is a substantial or the most substantial source of, of traffic for funneling customers towards your beat store? Or would you say it's it's a combination of other factors? Man, in my own personal experience, I would say 90% YouTube. I do some things here and there, like on Instagram. I've got decent followings on Instagram and Twitter, modest followings, honestly. Um, And I do what I can on those platforms, but it's really YouTube. Yeah, just especially with my second channel now, which has just under like 1,800 subscribers, driving like just a lot of traffic from posting beats there every day. It's just always been YouTube for me. I know it's different for everybody, and there's a lot of ways to go about doing it. It's just I kind of stumbled on YouTube, and it really worked out for me. I know you upload BC YouTube. I know you upload BC Stars. obviously. What are some other platforms that you use to get traffic for your beats? SoundCloud. I really like SoundCloud. I don't I don't understand the algorithm or if it's like dying or if it's coming back to life, but I like SoundCloud. Um, I like that it's it feels like a community. And once you kind of tap in and show the platform love, you know, a couple of times a week, just being a consistent like contributor to the community, you end up getting a lot of like support and engagement back. So I like SoundCloud. That's a nice that gives me a nice pocket of like my audience as well. Um, I really like Twitter more so for communicating with producers, but it's also just a good way for me to engage with artists directly. And that's another way that I kind of funnel traffic towards my beat store and into my like 
whole bigger marketing scheme or whatever is kind of just getting direct with artists that I really, really like, or that I think would be like good potential clients or customers. And I do similar things on Instagram, but I don't really post beats explicitly all the time on Instagram and Twitter. Um, But every once in a while I will like this morning I did on Twitter and it got some like pretty good engagement, which is nice. So I might be doing that a little bit more in the future. With, Uploading beats to SoundClick, obviously that's an entirely different platform. Um, do you have a, a strategy for that? Um, so actually, it's SoundCloud. Did I? I might have said SoundCloud. Not my bad. SoundCloud. No, you, I'm pretty sure you said SoundCloud. Right, right. So Sound uh, SoundCloud. Um, man, I wish I could understand and give a clear like way to approach it. But I don't really know because I don't really know how I ended up gaining engagement there. I just I sent a lot of people towards SoundCloud early. Um, Like I know when I was giving out free kits like two years ago, I was always like giving that giving them out in exchange for SoundCloud follows. So like actually building my following there showed that I would get more engagement over time. So I think maybe you get rewarded on the platform for just bringing other users onto the platform. And that would make sense. Um and then posting like good content, like SoundCloud isn't the place where you want to like post mediocre stuff. At least in my experience, like the good stuff does good, but like the okay stuff performs like really not that good. So I think it's more niche in that like the really good content does really rise to the top on SoundCloud because it's more music based. Um, but yeah, that's what I got for SoundCloud. Okay, so then for with SoundCloud, are you looking at? your YouTube and BeatStars performance and saying, okay, this track did particularly well. I'm going to put this one on SoundCloud, but I'm not putting this other one that didn't do so well. Yeah. That you literally nailed it on the head. Yeah. All right. Got it. Um, I, I noticed this is, this is, this, I don't know if this is significant or not. I noticed that a lot of your recent beat videos that you uploaded to YouTube don't have any tags. Was that intentional or is there something behind that? Um, it was probably just me being lazy. Like if I did a tunes to tube and then I ended up not, cause if you put the tags in tunes to tube, it'll like mess it up. So you have to go do it manually when you do that. So I was probably being lazy, but at the same time, I do have the idea in the back of my mind that tags really, don't mean as much as they used to they can still be really helpful so i shouldn't be lazy with that on any of my channels but especially my second channel because i'm trying to grow it um but i'll make the same mistake there too um but yeah there's nothing really behind it a lot of times it's just me being lazy and then factoring in the fact that it's like the most the least important like metadata thing so i won't even take the one minute to go do it even though it's not that big a deal so then in terms of, of how you select your tags, I know you you spoke about t- titles being the most important, descriptions being the second most important. In terms of the YouTube algorithm, what are you using for your keyword research? How are you determining how to, how to f- phrase your titles and how to uh, write out your descriptions and so forth? Mm, so through some trial and error and... I think it's different for everybody, which is why you have to go through that trial and error kind of process. But I do my keyword research using TubeBuddy. Like, 
I think there's a lot of good tools. VidIQ is also really good. There's a new one called Morning Fame, which is pretty dope too. Um, whatever tool you end up using, I just do keyword research using TubeBuddy. And um, I just try to like main, like find different keywords and test them all the time. Like a couple of months ago, I was testing German actually performing well with my second channel using those keywords that move back again, just to kind of test it out and see if I can grow in that niche as well. But um, yeah, I would say just like, that's the most important thing that I do, finding those artists that have like a lot of traffic, but don't have a lot of competition in them. So a lot of people are looking or searching for that, but they're posting content for that type of thing. Those are like the best keywords to go for. And then I just test those out. When I find one that gets more views than say my average, that I want to stick to and work into my like overall like content schedule. So right now you're at kind of still the testing phase or are, or have you decided on a niche yet where you're really focusing on one or two keywords and, and just hammering your, your channel with that? For my second channel with 1800 subscribers, that's just for the type beats. I would say I'm definitely still in the infancy phase of testing. I know I've got the Jaden Smith keyword for sure. Um, but I'm still testing and wonder girls good. Um, but like other keywords, like Travis Scott, Don Tolliver, German artists, like UFO, uh, 361 Kaleem and just a bunch of other stuff that I'm working with. I'm just testing out a lot of stuff. Um, eventually I want to narrow it down to like that two to four kind of like niche artists that I only post content for, but it's definitely still in the, in a testing phase for sure. Got it. Now, in terms of your other channel, the one that's inching towards 100,000 subscribers, you're close. I I assume you'll hit that within the next couple months. Um, What was the biggest factor in growing your subscribers? Um, I would say the biggest factor was posting good content consistently. There was a time, once upon a time, where I used to post tutorials very consistently. I do it with less frequency now, but I'm definitely trying to get back to that level. Um, And when I was doing that, like, I got, like, a few good videos in a row, and I was like, okay, like, let me just keep doing this. And I think the algorithm will reward me. So it just kept sending me subscribers, and it honestly didn't stop until I stopped being consistent. Um, So just finding that hot streak of things that worked, like, I think it was like dark melodic like tutorials and something or something like that. And then using like just there was a certain way that I used to set up my title. So basically just creating a series and making sure that I remained in like the niche type of content that I was creating. And then I just I kept doing it. Sometimes I got a video that didn't do so hot and it was definitely a bummer. But like overall, it was like working really, really well. So I, I just kept doing it and I would mix in beats every once in a while and those would go crazy, too. And um, I just stay consistent with it. Eventually, I just kind of got less frequent with posting on my tutorial channel. Tutorial channel as I like got opportunities and stuff. But yeah, staying consistent once I found something that worked was like 100% like the difference maker. Because if I had just like BS'd it, I definitely would not have made the same amount of growth at all. Here's a question then. Um especially since you are, you know, a lot of producers are making beat tutorials as well as trying to sell beats as well. You're doing both. I assume your, your channel's monetized. Are your beat sales on par with the YouTube revenue from the tutorial videos you're posting? <laughs> nah, man, I wish, but, uh, 
goals for sure. I would say on a my revenue is average between like nine hundred and twelve hundred dollars a month. So it's like it's not. I guess I wouldn't scoff at money like that, but it's like nothing crazy either. And you have to consider that I have almost a hundred thousand subscribers. People would think you would make more from YouTube ad revenue, but I, the music niche in general, I think, has like a low like amount of money you make per like view or something. So that factors into it as well. Yeah, you but should I, be making uh, TikTok compilations or like crate challenges. Something. So, <laughs> dude, that crate challenge is hilarious. I, I, man, I, I had to stop watching them because I've seen so many. I saw this rapper out here um, who just signed a Rock Nation, Huey V. I saw him do one and he fell from. I'm like, man, oh, they look so painful. They hit the ground so hard. I don't care if it's grass. I don't. I don't care what it is. They hit the ground so hard. I. I feel and, and I feel like I'm in. I guess apparently we've both been nominated as like the fittest producers on the planet. <laughs> I. I. I wouldn't put myself in the category, especially with you know some really muscular, athletic producers out there. But, um, I would be scared to death to do that crate challenge. I would. I would dislocate something. Healthy as I am, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I. I. I I do different things with crates that are way safer than that. Um, back back in March, you tweeted. So I have a whole bunch of information from your tweets. Like between you and Cloud Nine, you make my my research job easy and difficult because it's easy because I can just look at the tweets and I'm like, oh, this is a good one. Difficult because they're just there's there's so much. <laughs> uh, back in March, you tweeted. If you didn't make the sale to an artist, it was 99%, 99.9% your fault. Having this mentality helped me sell a lot of beats. What was going on then that you learned from, and, and what did you mean by that, and, and what can other producers learn from that? So that stems from basically from taking that approach, I learned to take responsibility for everything that's happening with like the achievement of my goals basically so if my goal is that i want to beats or i want to sell a beat to an artist then i'm taking responsibility for having a good enough content to get in front of them in the first place setting up my marketing and all my distribution platforms properly so that i can be in front of them at the right time setting up my calls to action correctly so that if they are interested, which they should, because my content should be amazing, setting it up so that there's no way they can be confused about what to do in order to get the product, whether it's a free download or a purchase. Um, maybe my prices are bad. That's my fault. Maybe I'm not, you know, relating it well to the industry, like, you know, standards. Uh, maybe the beat's not good. Like, maybe the art's not good. Maybe it wasn't mixed well. Like, I'm taking, I'm thinking of literally everything that I can control because, like, that just makes the process so easy instead of blaming it on the saturation, blaming it on there being too many producers, blaming it on artists, not having money, blaming it on the fact that you can't pay for ads or it's hard to grow on YouTube. Like you could complain and blame stuff all day. And that's one way to use your energy. But when you start thinking about different ways that you can be in an even better position, that's just a much better mindset to me. So that it seemed a lot harsher in that tweet, especially hearing it back. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's mean. But um, it definitely just means assuming responsibility, which is something I've had to like learn and 
since I've been an adult, it's just taking responsibility for everything that I can control, which is a lot when you think about it. How do you deal with um, with customer service? What what is what is your strategy there, and how has that changed with time? So now I deal with customer service as it being the second most important thing that I can possibly do for my business. The first most important is actually getting the customer in the first place because you can't service them if you don't get them in the first place. But after that, customer service is like the most important thing, making sure they're getting their products, making sure they're happy, figuring. I send customer surveys all the time to people who purchased and people who didn't purchase because I'm always trying to figure out how can I make a better product? How can I be a better marketer? How can I be a better content creator? And that's a part of customer service too, is actually querying your audience, querying your customers and downloaders and stuff, asking how they felt about the product. And then asking the people who didn't purchase or didn't download, why didn't they download? Why didn't they purchase? Because you can get a lot of good answers from that, which in turn helps you perform customer service better. I definitely was not always like that. It's uh, something I've had to learn as I've like set up my business and my brand more. And um, I started out pretty bad with it. When I first started, I was really lazy about responding to people um, and just kind of had an attitude sometimes when people make complaints, reasonable complaints or ridiculous complaints. Any complaint would make me mad. I felt like I was too above it. So that was something I definitely had to outgrow, especially as I've like kind of increased like my visibility and increased my like client base and the amount of people that I'm able to serve. That could be an entirely separate episode, just talking about that. Um, What's your daily routine? Daily routine is I wake up in the morning anywhere between five and six, and I meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. I do some journaling for another 20 minutes, and then I do some reading for 30 minutes. Um, From there, I'll usually go to the gym. Um... Pretty much every day, yeah. I might have an off day like every couple of weeks, but I usually like to go to the gym every day. And then I'll come back, kind of shower, eat, and then get into get into making beats. I like to spend like my most energetic hours besides being in the gym on actually making beats because like I just have the best creative effort at that point. Um, and then once I kind of get tired of making beats in like two or three hours, I'll take a break from that, eat, do some more reading. And then I'll get into setting up my mar- as much marketing as I can for the next day. And if I can get ahead, then the days ahead as well. Um, I used to try setting up marketing stuff in the morning, but I realized I was spending a lot of my good energy on like setting up marketing. And that's more of a dull task compared to making beats. So I switched it. I do beats now and then I do marketing for the next day or for the next few days at night. And that's worked pretty well for me. Once I kind of shut that down for the night, so I'll do marketing for maybe two or three more hours, shut it down, eat some food, do some reading, go to sleep by like 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, wake up and do it all over again. Let's talk about physical health then. Um, you've also in a tweet expressed that your income doubled after you started taking better care of your physical health. What do you think the correlation is there? Um, I think because I, I feel pretty spiritual sometimes. Um, so I think it's 
it's spiritual in that like when you treat yourself better, you're just open to more opportunities or you're like more perceptive to life in general. I think when you feel good, you perform well. Um, but then like more practically, like I was, I started eating less crap. So like junk food is like some of the most expensive food, like fast food is pretty expensive. I stopped smoking weed. Like I used to spend a lot of money on weed and then that would give me munchies. So I'd spend even more money on food. Um, so just cutting out that habit saved me a lot of money. And then I stopped doing other kind of like, maybe I wouldn't know how to describe these activities. They're not bad activities, but I didn't consider them the best use of my time. Like I canceled my Netflix subscription, canceled Hulu, canceled Disney plus. Like I had all of them, Crunchyroll, Funimation canceled all of them. So that ended up saving me money too. And I just like replaced all that like time with reading. Um, So like that kept me from doing, wasting my time doing like watching TV and then paying to watch that TV and then wasting money doing like dumb things with my friends and stuff like that. Cause I just got less interested in hanging out with them. The more that I kind of was refining myself from a like self-improvement, self-development kind of like perspective and all of that just helped me be better with money and helped me save money in general. And I think that's the correlation there. What was that like transitioning out of, I, I don't know how else to say it. I'm just going to say it. Transitioning out of having a social life. What is that like for you? Um, <laughs> It's been like more emotional than I thought it would be. Like I always thought I was like the type of person who could just, like make a transition, like cut people off and not really care. Like I felt like I was very hard emotionally, but it was kind of tough to realize that like, I didn't view myself as like being on the same wavelength as like basically every single person in my life. Um, And that's when the transition really began. I was like, okay, so I need to like first kind of realize that I'm my own person and then start trying to find other people who resonate more with me. But the transition has been, like, a very spiritual one. Like, just understanding, like, everyone's kind of got their own thing going on. Everyone's on their own wavelength. And learning to be very, very okay with myself. But um, sometimes it's, like, a bummer because, I don't know, like, we're social creatures and we want to hang out with people, like, a lot and do fun things. And there's always that sense of FOMO. But, you know through self-discipline and kind of just learning to be comfortable with myself and learning that like doing that will attract better people for me has kind of like kept me going. Yeah. Especially since you've already talked about making all of these changes, one, just waking up early and going to sleep early. That's a change that will affect your social life. A lot of people won't understand that talking about, um, you know, not, I, I, I'm assuming if you quit smoking weed, you don't drink alcohol either. Nah. So that's another thing. And I've never been a drinker. So that part of my social life has been dead forever. Um, And, you know, that's frustrating. But, you know, eating healthier, being more active, all of those things creates barriers or you feel like they're barriers, right? You know, if you go out with your friends, they want to get drunk and go eat at three in the morning. And the second you say no, all of a sudden, it's like you're committing a social sin and feels bad to them because it's like, man, choose change. And then it feels bad to you because you're like, wow, I'm just a weirdo. I'm different. I'm like an alien. And, I'm, and I'm, 
in turn alienating myself from my friends. Yeah, it's just tough. And, and that that doesn't even touch on the element of entrepreneurialism where you're just as as a creative and as a small business owner, you're doing something that, you know, 90 percent of the population doesn't do. Exactly. All right, enough uh, depressing stuff. You you recently tweeted out five steps to create a music producer business. I think you even did that this week. Um, so I'm finally starting to catch up. Number two was as follows. I think that email lists are the single most important thing you can have as an entrepreneur. Why are they the most important uh, aspect to a, a career? Because... It- it is the only thing that you actually own in like the digital like space of like networking, e-commerce, like all that stuff that you do on the internet where you're trying to like build a network. It's like the only network that you can create that you can like actually take with you, move it, and that you can actually own it and access it whenever you want. Um, I think the best way is just to like give an example because in 20, what was it, 2019? Yeah, like right after I started like doing everything full time, like I was, my channel was like growing, everything was like going really well. I was like actually making decent money. I was very happy. And then like I fell for this like ridiculous scam where like these people got into my account and like got my channel. And like it was like the scariest moment of my life or not scariest moment of my life, but it was definitely a scary moment because I was like, damn, I really just lost my channel that I've been building up this entire time, put in all this work, and it was doing pretty good, and I lost it. Now I don't have access to any of those people anymore. Um, but luckily, like, I had my email list, and it already had, like, ten, th- like 11,000 or 12,000 people on it, honestly. And that was already, like, enough to keep my business going had like something terrible happen where I didn't get my channel back. And I actually put out a blast to my email list and I was telling them like, yo, my channel got taken. Like, you know, if there might be some weird stuff going on or like, you know, just be on the lookout. Don't fall for any scams or like, it, cause the guy was like asking people to like send him money, pretending to be me. He was doing it on like YouTube comments on, and on my Instagram and everything. Um, and like the people that I sent that email to actually contacted Google on my behalf so many times that they reached out to me and they were like, all right, we're going to give you your channel back. Like, just tell, like, you're good. Like, we're going to set it up where you can get it back. And I was like, wow, like that never happens. It's usually you lose your channel and you have to make a new one. Um, so it was like, that was crazy. And if I didn't have an email list, like if I had lost my channel, I would have to start all over. I wouldn't have been able to funnel any traffic. I mean, I still could have done it, but like the amount of difficulty and there wasn't that same fear of like, I have to shut down my whole business because I don't have my YouTube channel anymore. Like I could still just market on my list. I could still create content for my list and then like still have a sustainable income. So, I mean, that example right there, I think shows like if the, if the social media network you're using for the main, for like your main engagement, driving traffic towards like whatever products you're offering, just all of a sudden shuts down, Instagram deletes, YouTube decides they're going to start charging you a hundred bucks a month to use this platform, whatever it is, like having that traffic that you actually own, that you collected in the form of emails is just like, it's crazy valuable. Like, I don't know. I'm a total geek about it, but it's, it's crazy valuable. All right. We're going to have to have a part two because we're running out of time and I would, I would love to hear that 
terrifying story. Maybe, maybe we can do another one around Halloween or something and tell that <laughs> that story about how you almost lost your channel. That's a nightmare. Um, so we'll we'll just we'll DM and I'll try okay, to convince cool. you. What was I going to say? Um, so what would you say? Oh man, the audio kind of cut out. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh no, that was my fault. Sorry. Uh, Bufo asked the question, but my question is, what would you say are the most important elements of successful email marketing? And then I I was going to follow up by asking his question, but I'm just going to pin it below. Okay. Um, So I'll try to combine all of that in like a, the shortest way that I can. Um, and a successful approach to email marketing would be to approach it from a perspective of relationship building and not like sending promotions. That would be the best way to approach it. Learning how to write subject lines that will get the people to actually open the email. Cause that's kind of like the same thing as creating good titles on YouTube and using like good thumbnails. The subject line is going to actually get them to open the email and then writing good content in the emails like of stuff that actually is going to be helpful to them. So whether it's providing helpful advice or resources for artists or providing free products and tutorial and tutorial content for producers, depending on whatever type of content you're making, just making sure that you're providing a very high like volume of helpful content while at the same time building a relationship. And then you can follow that up with promotion So I would say for every like four promotional things you do or four like value filled content pieces that you send to your email list, one of those things could be a promotion. So one out of every, I would say, is the best ratio, at least for me. Um, And then just continue to study, study things like copywriting. It's very underrated how important it is to actually be good at writing in order to communicate with people through email. Um, copywriting has been something that's been difference making for me, honestly, especially just learning how to write better sentences and tell better stories to people, um, has been really, really important. So just kind of understanding that it's not, you don't approach it as being spammy and it won't be spammy. That's basically the best way I can say it. You really are trying to build a relationship with these people and you just so happen to have products that they will need at some point. So they'll shop with you when you make them, when you make them a promo, but you really are trying to build a relationship that is 100% like I'm here to help you like with as much as I can realistically help you with. And Hey, I also sell stuff that you need sometimes. So come get it for me because I'm your friend and the other guy's not your friend. That's kind of the approach to like email marketing, honestly. What email marketing platform do you use? I use MailChimp. Okay. Do you have automation set up at all with MailChimp? So many automations. Okay. I love automation. What what kind of automations and at what point of the of the email process are, are those uh, messages automated? So it happens almost always at the beginning. So right when someone actually joins my list or downloads a product for the first time, they'll get sent through an automation. Um, and I think I have like a 40 or 50 day like automation sequence before someone actually makes it to my main broadcast where they get like my weekly emails and newsletters. So if you've ever joined my email list, even though like I reply like pretty frequently to everything, 
like those first 50 emails are just completely automated. They're not even anything that I'm writing in real time. It's stuff that I set up way before, but it's for the point of like getting engagement and building, you know, relationships with people. Um, and then sometimes I'll use automations on the back end for like delivering lead magnets and then kind of funneling that into other like sequences that sell products. But for the most part, it's, it's really upfront. And then everything else is single kind of campaigns. Wow. 50 email automations. And those just, those are for conversation starters. You're not, you're not trying to sell anything in those 50 or are you mentioning products that might, might be for sale? I would say, so out of the, you know, whatever amount of emails I'm sending during that time period, I would say 70% of it is just relationship buildings, conversation starters, sending valuable um, knowledge and stuff like that. 75%. Yeah. And the other 25% is actually talking about products. Like there are some sequences in there for artists and producers that talk strictly, not strictly about the product, but it's definitely geared more towards driving a sale. There's a few of those you know, for every audience, but it's mostly just relationship building for that first, you know, I think it's 40 or 50 days that they're on that, on the email list. I really am more focused on building a good relationship and showing that like my content is going to be valuable to you. And uh, I'm, I'm here to help. All right. So last question, um, I mentioned it in the chat, but I want to make sure everybody knows how to follow you, how to get your content, how to watch your videos and so forth. Definitely. Um, so if you just search Chew Beats on Google or YouTube, you'll find my YouTube channel pretty easily. Um, it's the one that's almost at 96,000 subscribers now. Um, and then if you want to find me on almost any other social media platform, it's going to be at prod by Chew. And that's on Instagram and Twitter. And then I'm Sideshow, Sideshow Chew on on SoundCloud and on BeatStars. Um and yeah, I think that's everything basically. And then, you know, you can join my email list and stuff in basically any link that's in the description of literally anything. And that's another way to get in touch with me as well. Why Sideshow 2? Is that a Simpsons reference? It definitely is. <laughs> Got it. All right. Hey, well, once once again, Sideshow 2, appreciate your time and expertise and honesty throughout this conversation. Uh, definitely going to reach out and because I have questions left over. And from now until whenever we talk next, I'm sure you'll tweet a whole bunch more stuff that's going to ask even more questions. Um, so I will I will reach out and hopefully we can can work out a part two. Really appreciate that. Um, shout out to everyone in the chat. I'll be back same time, same place next week uh, with Iceberg. I believe Iceberg. Yeah, Iceberg is is next week's special guest. He just went like a million times platinum uh, for the Polo G and and uh, little TJ pop out record among other high-profile placements. So I definitely want to talk about that. He didn't go a million times platinum, but he went six, which is four times short of diamond. That's, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, to that conversation. Don't miss it. I'll catch you then. Once again, appreciate you too. And I will talk to you soon. Peace, everyone.